0: The Scoop Podcast, brought to you by PPG, the official paint of the Pittsburgh Penguins.
1: Welcome into the latest episode of The Scoop Podcast, presented by PPG. I'm Michelle Creciolo here in the studio with Sam Kassan and our executive producer, Wayne Gretzky-Anderson. This is actually our first podcast of the new decade, but before we get into the new decade, we're going to take a look back at the past decade. This past week, we've been rolling out the moments from the last 10 years that stand out to us the most personally on pittsburghpenguins.com in our Decade in Review series. But there's obviously so many more moments for us to talk about, and what I think makes our perspective especially unique is that Sam and I have both been with the Penguins for the past decade. Sam, how, how crazy is that when you think about it?
2: I've wasted my life.
1: <laughs> the 10 best years of your life.
2: 10 best years. My- no, it's been an amazing run. Um, and obviously the Penguins have been the most successful team over this past decade, really the last 15 years going back to the lockout um, in the salary cap era, you can look at, the, I mean, the numbers bear it out. With the, they've got, since the salary cap era, three Stanley Cups, made the playoffs 13 straight years, have 19 individual awards, everything from scoring titles, goal-scoring titles, guys going into the Hall of Fame, you know, MVPs, Coach of the Year, General Manager of the Year. I mean, the, literally the Penguins have done it all, a sellout streak that's going to be 600 games and counting. So it, it's been a ridiculously prosperous time for uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins franchise and for the Penguins fans. And to be a part of the run, I mean, we both have been absolutely blessed. It's, it's been a special, special moment. And, and as you said, so many great things have happened in the past decade. And so I can't wait to really uh, get into this because we have been rehashing a lot of these memories as we went through that series on the website. So a lot of a lot of great things have come up in that time.
1: Well, so you started in 8 So you brought in this new decade of Penguins hockey starting in 2010. What's maybe the first moment that you remember from that year working for the team?
2: Oh eight oh nine
1: 9
2: or uh, the 10-11? a good question. Well, the t- so the 10-11 season obviously was the end of the 9-10 season, which was after the Penguins had won the Cup in 09. And th- the big thing that year obviously was it was the final year at Mellon Arena. So being a Pittsburgher, being a Penguins fan my whole life, little Sammy used to go to all the games <laughs> at uh <laughs> At Civic Arena, then and then eventually Mellon Arena. So the the fact that it was closing down, obviously, it <laughs> was very dated, and uh, it, it had its issues, but also had its charm. So uh, it was it was a, a sad year in the sense that you you, you hated to say goodbye, but also exciting because you knew b- bigger and better things were on the horizon. Obviously, PPG Paints Arena is maybe the finest facility in uh, the National Hockey League. So, you know, going in each, you know, there was the big celebration of the final season opener at Mellon, all the way through to the, to the final regular season game against the New York Islanders. And then uh, going into the playoffs, obviously the Penguins won the first round against Ottawa, and then they played the Montreal Canadiens in the second round. And you really thought they were going to make a run because basically the top three teams fell to the lower seed, the Penguins being the only favorite team beating their seed. So it was the Penguins and then the 678 seed or whatever it was and so they drew um, Montreal. So in the back of your mind you're you thinking this is going to be a long run and then uh, a devastating really game 7 loss to the Canadians was was because as it's going down there's so many emotions not only are you watching this team underachieve a little bit because obviously they they had the talent to to win that series but it's also in the back of your mind as the game's going on you're thinking this is the final game. There's never going to be another hockey game played in Mellon Arena. And I think it really hit in the third period because um, the Penguins were down four to one. And I think Jordan Stahl scored to make it four to two. So there was like kind of a semblance of hope. They could pull this out. Obviously, with the talent that the Penguins have, they could score at will. So you're like kind of a semblance of hope. And then Montreal scored to make it five two. And that's when you kind of knew like this, this is the end. And uh, in the final 10 minutes, you know, clock down and was hoping that it would kind of go longer and longer because you wanted to capture that moment and, and have it last forever, but eventually it did come down to the end and that was the final game. And like I said, it was a bittersweet feeling because you thought there could have been some more games, maybe, but at the same time, so many memories from that building. Three Stanley Cups, from the two from the early 90s, the one in 2009. I mean, no doubt one of the loudest venues too with that, you know, the igloo shape at the top, the sound just had nowhere to escape so it would ricochet over and come down to the other side and uh, and, and I mean I could sit here all day talking about memories from the <laughs> arena I won't do that because it's a the decade podcast but
1: yeah, it actually makes me sad cuz I never got a chance to see a game inside Mellon Arena because when I started the team had already moved into what was then Consol Energy Center and now PPG Paints Arena so it's actually cool for me to hear you talking about it because <laughs> it makes me feel like I was there at some point. Uh, but yeah, it, it sounds like it was an incredible arena.
2: Yeah, it was. I mean, like I said, it, it had its odd charms to it, too. You know, it, the, the press box was kind of an afterthought that was built hanging over top. And it was probably not safe. You know, you'd walk out of it creek and <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, that was part of the charm of the, the arena. So opening of the decade was it's funny because the opening of the decade was the closing of an era. For, for Melon Arena. Ooh, I like that. Ooh, yeah, it's like I'm a writer. <laughs> wow, what a turn of phrase.
1: <laughs> so what do you remember from opening the new arena? Uh,
2: well, I, obviously the process went on for a couple years, but I remember walking through it. Actually, when we first moved our offices in there, they hadn't finished construction. So we had to walk around with these uh, helmets, <laughs> the, uh, the construction helmets. So literally yeah. like everyone that worked for the Penguins was walking around in these construction helmets. I still have mine. <laughs> Um, for the first two or three weeks, I think. Yeah. So it was kind. Of, it was kind of fun, but I mean, it was going from you know the worst building in the league <laughs> to the best building in the league overnight. I mean, it was night and day, and had every every everything was state of the art. You, you, from the TVs to the layout, the the scenery, you know, c- carpeting. I mean, it sounds dumb to say, but I remember there were like stains in the and Arena carpet in our offices that were just like probably there for a decade. Nobody knew, what, you know. <laughs> It's like, oh, yeah, there's, that's, that's there.
1: <laughs> that's a thing.
2: Yeah, that's a thing that's just going to be there. <laughs> but it just everything was just gorgeous, absolutely beautiful from top to bottom. The design, the layout, everything was so cool. And uh, the the first game, obviously they played a preseason game, uh, but the first regular season game, it was against the Flyers, and they brought out actually the red carpet, and the players walked the red carpet into the arena, and uh, that was fun. <laughs> Actually, that my one of my first memories was as they were walking the red carpet. Myself and uh, one of our coworkers, Jason Seidling, went onto the roof at then it was Consol Energy Center, now PPG Paints Arena. We went onto the roof and went over top where that red carpet was because we wanted to get a photo of um, the, from a t- from above. So we were way up top, leaning over the edge. I was so afraid I was going to drop the camera. But we were getting, and it was crowds of people had gathered on each side of the red carpet, and the, the limousines would pick up the players at their uh, parking lot then drive them around. So as they arrived in the parking lot, they would hop into the limousine. The limousine would pull around, and they would let them out, and they would walk the red carpet. So I remember just that view will never leave me, like seeing it from above, seeing the guys walk the red carpet. And then just being inside, I remember actually I think I, I told Jason at the time, like, take some time because... You know, opening a new arena, a new stadium, th- these things are once in a lifetime opportunity, So you're, you're never going to open another new arena. So take a couple minutes before the anthem, after warm up, whenever, and just stand there and soak it in. And I remember I did that myself, and it was just one of the most wildest experiences. Uh, you know, because again, you don't, you never know. Like, obviously people come other times, but to open an, an arena, to be there for the end of one era and then the opening of another era was truly, truly amazing. What were your impressions of the new arena when you got there?
1: Honestly, I was just so overwhelmed in Be- so many coming, aspects. Al- also,
2: you're coming from Detroit, <laughs> right. so Joe Louis Arena isn't exactly... I mean, we're talking about <laughs> Melon Arena being uh, special. Joe Louis <laughs> Arena is also special in its own way.
1: It's just so funny because uh, like, I remember talking to Mark andre Fleury about it uh, because obviously Joe Louis Arena, you know, the Penguins had won... Uh, the 2009 Stanley Cup there, so a lot of special memories for them. But, you know, talking to Flower and reflecting back on it, I feel like the first thing he always talked about was the smell of Jules Serena before oh, he even yeah. got into any of the, it you know... like
2: chemicals. <laughs>
1: it did. It did. So that was refreshing, <laughs> literally, to come into the new arena and not have that smell uh, surrounding me at all times anymore. But, you know, it's just... When I think back on... You know, starting with the Penguins, you know, I just graduated from Michigan State University in 2010 in the spring and didn't know what I was going to do uh, for a few months. You know, I was obviously applying for jobs and doing all of that, but just had no idea what was next for me. And it's something where I knew I wanted to work in hockey. I mean, I started playing at the age of four, grew up playing it my entire life, loved it so much, had such a passion for it, and I knew that I wanted to work in the sport just didn't know what it was going to be. And I just remember I was on a long drive somewhere that summer, and I just remember thinking, like, what would it be like to work for the Penguins and get a chance to work alongside Sidney Crosby? And I just remember playing out the scenario in my head, like, just how incredible it would be, how awesome it would be. You know, he'd obviously just, you know, led the Penguins to a Stanley Cup, was so young and such a superstar, and... You know, I, I just thought about it. And then, you know, once the drive ended, I was like, yeah, no chance that'll ever <laughs> happen. Never. Like never, never in a million years no. will that opportunity come up. And then for you to, you know, reach out to me uh, and invite me to Pittsburgh for an interview and for me to get the job was just so surreal. And to this day, it still is so surreal. But I think, you know, reflecting back on that first year, 2010, uh, what stands out to me the most is just his point streak that he went on that 25-game point streak because it, he when I started, he was in the midst of it. Um, you know, my first day was November 22nd. You, uh, you you were on the road with the team in Florida for a game on November 23rd, and I think he stretched it to nine games at that point, which in itself was incredible. Um, but for it to go on the way that it did and to you know, last as long as it did and for him to compile 50 points over that span – I mean, it's just, I, that is one of my all-time moments, which I ended up writing about for the website because it's just what stands out to me the most from that year.
2: And I think it was his 23rd game. Yeah. And it was late in the third period. They were losing 3-1 to one or 4-1, to one, and you, you knew they were going to lose. And uh, at that point I'd been, because obviously we watch the opening two and a half periods from the press box and then go down to be in the media room. So I was watching the final five minutes or whatever in the uh, coach's room. And, and I don't remember uh, who was there, but I remember we were like watching intently, intently. And then one of the Penguins scored. And we were like, did he get it? Did he get a point? Because he, put- he was on the ice. So we were like, did he get a point? And then uh, and, and no one knew. And then, yes, he got a secondary assist on a late goal that was pretty meaningless. In, in the sense of the game, because obviously the Penguins lost the game. But it kept the streak going. And I just, it was such a cool, like, because we're all in the, in the coach's room. And. Once they announced that he got the point, we all, like, cheered. we're <laughs> so happy for the guy. And, you know, obviously he wanted to, wanted to keep the streak going. So it was, yeah, and I also, the other thing about that streak, I remember that was when Billy Guerin had officially retired and retired as a Penguin, not that you retire as a, necessarily with one team, but he identified a lot with the Penguins at that time and wanted to be around the Penguins organization. But, yeah, Billy, Billy Guerin retired and did a press conference and somebody asked him about Crosby's streak and his play and he literally said, quote, What he's doing is an assault on the league, end quote. And I thought that was the greatest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, Leave um, it to Billy G to sum it up best. Of all
1: the lines we've heard throughout the years, that one stands out so much to me. (laughs) But I think, too, it's something we're like, you know, 10 seasons in, we still can't believe that it's our job to watch the best player in the world do his. There's obviously been so many magical moments over the years. But I think, for me at least, that was the first time I realized just truly how special he was seeing it up close. And just being part of it and not watching it from, you know, a a TV uh, or, you know, my house or wherever, just like being in the arena as he went on and had this amazing, incredible streak, which was the first time in 18 years anybody had done anything like that. Because the league had changed. I mean, people weren't scoring at the same pace they were back when, you know, like Marilyn Mia and Wayne Gretzky yeah, and all those 80s, guys were yeah. in the league. Well,
2: the Devils brought the trap in the right. 90s and then everything yeah. shut down. Yeah,
1: exactly. So for him to do that and put his name alongside those guys and just have it stand the test of time, I think was something that was just so remarkable. And it was just like, you know, this scenario I'd envisioned in my head. Even when I was imagining it, it wasn't anywhere close to this. <laughs> like Leave it to Sydney Crosby <laughs> to
2: always exceed expectations. Just exactly. When, just when you think you set the bar too high, he just jumps over it.
1: Right. But I think, you know, the crazy part was was to be at such a high with that and then just go to such a low with the concussion uh struggles that he had the next year. Um, you know, that was just something I think we look back on now and it's just uh, it's just such a dark time I think
2: yeah f- well for everyone too And, and I'm, well obviously he suffered the uh, concussion initially on the David Steckle hit in the Winter Classic that year which would have been obviously 2011 and then a couple of days later got the hit from Headman from behind where his, his head kind of smashed into the glass and again we didn't know it at the time I remember the, it was a back to back night Tampa Bay then Montreal and in Montreal he, he didn't feel well so he went back and we didn't know what was going on obviously we knew he was being looked at for a concussion. I really think Crosby's concussion brought a lot of awareness too to just head injuries in sports, head injuries in hockey. Um, the process of treating them too has become much more. I don't want to say he was never not serious, but I remember talking to some of the guys like the Phil Borks of the world. You no, know, back in the 90s, they'd have a concussion and the doctor would be like, How do you feel? i like, Well, I'm fine. And they go right <laughs> back out there, you know, and it, yeah. they would lie to the doctors back then. But now I think that seeing the best player in the world go through that has brought a, a greater awareness to it um so i, I think that is part of his legacy and, uh, another positive i mean he's done so many things another positive part of his legacy but it was wild not knowing cuz you know for the longest time he was just gone and and there was a point where a lot of people didn't know if he would ever play again because with a concussion you just don't know the the ramifications and we've seen some of the, the terrible effects whether it's you know uh, Lindros or Whoever all these players that have had these these terrible concussions, so it was it was it was a very dark time for a long time. At one point during the season, obviously a, a big memory that stands out to me was in Florida. This is when he was going through it still, in the early parts. At one point, uh, one of the media members wrote that the Penguins players were talking about someone else wearing the C because it became apparent that Crosby wasn't going to be returning that year. So there was reports that some of the players wanted someone else to have the C, not to strip it from Crosby, like obviously give it back to him when he comes back, but maybe have somebody else wear it, <laughs> which was completely erroneous, by the way, <laughs> obviously. And so when it came out, the the players were very upset, and to show solidarity, it was in Florida, it was in Sunrise, Florida, and I was sitting in the stands, and I saw one player come out, and he had a C taped on his chest from just regular hockey tape, like obviously a makeshift C. I was like, Okay, weird. Yeah, like a block C. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, okay, that's weird. (laughs) And then another player came out with a C. then another player came out with a C. And was like, okay, something's going on. And then every single player came out with a C on their chest, except Evgeny Malkin, of course, had to have a K, because in Russia, captain starts with a K. (laughs) So all these players came out with the Cs and the K and uh, skated around, and they did it to show solidarity with, with Sidney Crosby. And I don't know, I don't remember exactly whose idea it was or who spurred it, but the team clearly wanted to show that they supported Sidney Crosby as their captain, you know, th- their, that's their leader. And, and they were also saying, Hey, don't, don't write this bad stuff. Like it's not true. Don't, don't co- go out there with this stuff. So, uh, they, they went out with the Cs, and, and that obviously stood out. And then over the summer, uh, when we got into training camp and Crosby wasn't ready, I, I remember the press conference where it was Chris it was <laughs> Christmas for Sidney Crosby because he was going to get better. And, he was, he's a Ferrari, and <laughs> just some of the, it was one of the loudest <laughs> press conferences I've ever seen. But, but the yeah. takeaway was Sidney Crosby was going to have a long and prosperous career. And then Sidney Crosby was actually asked about retiring, and so the thought never crossed his mind. Because I think a lot of people did think, if it is this bad, is this the end? And to see a player cut down at 23 years old at the height of his career, like you said, he just came off that 25-game scoring streak, clearly the best player in the world. It would just be an absolute tragedy for him to be cut down like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, speaking of the press conference, I mean, I think that was such a learning experience for us in terms of covering and reporting the team because I think that's when I truly realized how much Sidney Crosby is the face of the team. You know, watching him go through that point streak, yeah, sorry, yeah, of the league. Then going through that point streak, I realized just how special he was on the ice. And then going through that whole experience of, covering his recovery from the concussion, I think I realized truly just how much he is the, how, you know, how important he is off the ice. And I think, you know, he was hurt on January 1st. Like you said, that was the initial concussion. And then, uh, you know, he didn't take the ice again until March 14th, which is when you were in Florida with him and he skated for the first time. Um, You know, and then from there, it was just something where I feel like every day we would walk into the locker room, one of us would go straight to his stall and just sit there and, and wait. just sit there <laughs> and wait. Because everybody was literally, I feel like sitting on the edge of their seats waiting for some sort of update about his status. Every single day we had to put something out about his status. And I feel like the majority of the time Yeah,
2: there was no update. There was no
1: update. It was the the no update update. But you <laughs> had to put it out there because people wanted to know. At the end of the day, that's what stood out the most too. As it went on and on, it's like you just wanted to be okay. Yeah. And you know, honestly, at that point, it's like I'd rather you be okay than yeah. I don't care if you ever play a exactly. Game. Be okay. yeah. Yes.
2: Yeah. Obviously, I'm glad you came back yeah. and <laughs> right won a couple more Stanley <laughs> Cups and yes. And we've been along for the ride. Yeah, I came back better than ever. Yeah. Well, he did come back better than ever. Uh, his return game. Speaking of November twenty first against the New York Islanders, and the day before, obviously, we announced it, and speaking of the media, I don't think I've ever seen a bigger media horde.
1: And we've covered, I mean, you've covered three Stanley Cup finals, I've covered two Stanley Cup finals, and obviously, the media is on another level at that point, but it has never been as crazy as it was, than it was for Sid's return game.
2: Yeah, uh, there must have been 100 media in the locker room just just cramming into one stall.
1: There's actually uh, footage of s- a media member was filming the media <laughs> going into <laughs> the room and it was a never-ending line. Yeah. Poor Pascal Dupuis, I mean. <laughs> 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 Who had the locker stall next to Sidney Crosby. I mean, that's something where bother. you just have to... Yeah. yeah, like, don't even bother. Either I mean, stand it, the ice that or... That one
2: swelled out even more because Dupuis all, all, always had to deal with it. But at right. that point, it swelled out a couple lockers deep.
1: Yeah, it was just pure chaos Um, but obviously it was pure chaos but pure excitement
2: oh yeah oh yeah I was thinking it was was an exciting day it was we were very amped up for it and then the signs I remember going out going up to the press box and they were handing out the signs and I know it was something that I think this actually was a a Mario Lemieux idea speaking of but because when Mario came back um, Penguins fans had the signs welcoming welcoming him back mm-hmm. when he uh, when he took a year off and had to deal with obviously Hodgkin's disease and everything and obviously triumphed over that. So when Mario came back, they had the signs up, and he wanted something similar for Sid to make him feel you know loved and welcomed and appreciated. Obviously, so uh, so they had these welcome back Sid signs, and they were just everywhere. And again, you're wondering like you're just glad he's back. You're glad he's okay. He's healthy and then you're like well it's been 11 months you know <laughs> since he's played it's been it was literally 350 days since he last played a game you wonder if he's going to be any good <laughs> you know i know he's the best player in the world but you know that's a long time to miss game action and of course 5 minutes into it takes a pass in the neutral zone shields around Andy McDonald then lifts a backhander into the top corner and you're just like all right we're we're good this guy's good <laughs> finishes the game with two goals four points has the game winner he back. <laughs> he back.
1: I honestly have chills thinking about it now, still to this day. However many years later.
2: Yeah, I mean that that might be the one of the greatest memories I have.
1: Well, right, because that's the thing with Sid is that he always finds a way to make the moment magical. Like you couldn't have written that up any better, right? Like yeah.
2: that's the story. Yeah. Well, which if, as if we you're writing yeah. a story, you probably at least give him a goal. You know, yeah. the four points and the winner. Yeah, and have it happen like that. Yeah. Because it wasn't even, you're like, all right, maybe a breakaway, blah, 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 blah. But, like, I just think it's better. Like, he, he shields the guy. Just so typical Sidney Crosby. Uses his leverage, gets low, shields the, the puck away from the defender, and then lifts one of the nasty backhanders because he's got the signature backhand. And against a guy, I think Nielsen was the goaltender, who's like six nine So <laughs> he didn't have a lot of room <laughs> to really get it high, and he got it high. nine Well, whatever. He's 6'5". <laughs> 6'6". <laughs> uh, He's a tall goaltender, like he takes up a lot of space yeah. so To get it over his shoulder on a backhand Is near impossible And of course, well I say near impossible, but then there's Sidney Crosby There's impossible, then there's possible And Sidney Crosby always finds the possible
0: Derrick England defensively for the Penguins Bump a pass off the boards to Dupuis, to Crosby Darts into the Islanders' end, goes to the net Hey! Shilts and stars with a gorgeous backhander And the Penguins take a one nothing lead Oh, slap me, silly, Sydney. Penguins won. Islanders nothing.
1: And he said afterward, he's like, the goals and assists were great, but just being back out there, he couldn't even really describe it. Uh, he said, you know, he was anxious. There was so much going through his mind. I can't even imagine how much was going through his mind. And he said the main thing was to enjoy playing, and that was something he missed over the last ten months. And so for him to, I mean, that was just such an incredible game. And you know, I remember us telling our interns we had two that semester, and we're just like, "Just buckle up, we're going to be in for a long <laughs> night." And Could we be a were, long
2: night here. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's gonna be a three a.m. Uh, night.
1: It was, it was, but it was so worth it. I mean, I think everyone just had so much adrenaline and so much energy and so much, you know, like I said, excitement that you know we couldn't have been happier to do that. I think, especially considering the way you know the previous months, the previous year had gone. Just you know, it being such a dark time. And and just how stressful it was, and you know, for him to come back like that, it was like okay, <laughs> everything's going to be okay. Yeah, everything <laughs> is going to
2: be all right. And obviously, the Penguins fans loved having Crosby back. And and I was you know, it's hard to explain how great the fan base is in Pittsburgh. But if you're looking for anything to really stand out to you, the black and gold game is one that shows how much Penguins fans love this team. So uh, back in this was after the obviously the lockout eliminated half the 12 13 season. And they finally came to an agreement, signed a new CBA, and so since it was already so late, they just had obviously a 48-game season, and they decided to have a five-day training camp. <laughs> so it was literally, all right, team rejoins, you've got five days to do whatever, and then you play your first game.
1: God, that, that was such another stressful time. <laughs> you know, just months of not knowing what was happening, and then all of a sudden it's like, all right, we're literally going from zero to zero. To a million yeah. <laughs> in terms of like, I remember being, I think I was in my, I was sleeping or maybe I had just woken up you're and we got, know.
2: <laughs> anytime anything hey, big happens, That's about sleeping. to be
1: a theme when you talk <laughs> about <laughs> the Jerome McGinley tree.
2: Oh yeah. Well, no, we'll get there. We'll get there. You were also sleeping on that one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. It was just like, wake up, you know, get the news and go. And it was crazy.
2: I mean, I th- the rumors were swirling for a while that it was kind of coming to an end and, I know we, we made a couple trips to Wilkes-Barre during the, uh, the lockout. We went to London, Ontario to see Ole Matta and Scott and Harrington uh, at the time. And then, yeah, they finally came to the agreement, and you had five days. So the Penguins were trying to figure out a way to have a pseudo-preseason game, but you obviously couldn't play anybody. So they're like, all right, we'll play ourselves. We'll have an intra-squad preseason. And the thing is, too, it's when you think about preseason, sure, it's preseason for the Penguins. It's also preseason for a lot of the staff. I mean, the game night entertainments got to run through things. They're trying different things, um, make sure everything functions correctly. It had been literally at that point eight months since the game was played, since the previous playoffs. So, you know, you, the, the staff likes to run through kind of the preseason two to work out any kinks or, or issues or, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So the preseason is also a good way for the staff to kind of go through some things. So they wanted to have some type of preseason game, and I don't know who came up with the idea of, having the intra-squad game, but they were just, all right, we're going to play each other, and we'll make it as game-like as we can, a 60-minute game, full running clock, goals. And then so the staff jumped on, like, all right, we'll do the game entertainment. We'll run it as if it's a real game. And then somebody was like, well, why don't we open it up to the fans? And then, yeah, why not? And then obviously you can't sell tickets because it's not a true preseason game, but they're like, we'll just let them in the door. <laughs> why not, right? Yeah, so, why not, Does Gina says. Yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> So if you build it, they will come. Well, if you have a free free preseason game, intra-squad, they will come. And they did. And then, so they opened up, you know, the lower bowl. Like, all right, we'll put some fans in the lower bowl, and it'll be cool. And then one section fills up. Another section fills up. Another section fills up. And we're up in the press box watching them just all filter in, filter in, filter in. And I remember the ushers were trying to get them into lines and get them all organized. And then I don't remember who, but somebody raided over and said, hey, we're – uh." We're out of lower bowl seats. I'm like, okay, well, uh, all right, we'll get some ushers upstairs and let's fill the upper bowl. <laughs> so the ushers ran upstairs and started filling the upper bowl. And one section fills up, another section fills up. And then it's getting clear that they're just starting to run out of upper bowl seats. And they're like, oh, no, now what do we do? Like, well, all right, open the suites. <laughs> so someone ran down and literally just opened all the suite doors. Can you imagine
1: if you're, like, one of the last people in line, you're like, man, I'm not going to get in. Like, this stinks, whatever. Then you get a suite. <laughs>
2: So they open all the suites, all the fans start filling all the suites, and you've and the thing is there's what eighteen thousand three eighty the capacity seated capacity
1: at the time it was 087. Oh, sorry eighteen
2: thousand eighty seven capacity at the time so now there had to be nineteen thousand nineteen and a half thousand people there stand and you know and then there's the standing people that just opted to stand around and for intra squad preseason game but the the city had been so thirsty for hockey and. Had waited so long and finally hockey was back, and the fans obviously responded and overwhelmed everyone, e- even us. Like, I'm not saying, like, I'm not surprised now, like, knowing Penguins fans and at the time, I, was, I just didn't know people had time. You know, like, who knows? <laughs> like, literally two days ago, they announced this thing, and then all of a sudden, they just get flooded with people. And so that was the start of the lockout season.
1: Yeah, I remember the noise level, and I think even to this day, even after experiencing a couple Stanley Cup finals, the atmosphere from that game is right up there with that. Like, just the excitement, the energy, I mean, it was well, we thunderous. It as,
2: yeah, we built it as Crosby versus Malcolm, too. <laughs> which is probably the only time they've ever played against each other, technically. A I bet if it you asked Sid right uh, now, he Holy would remember Picks. exactly
1: who won that game. What's that? I bet if you asked Sid right now, he would know exactly well, who he, came he, out on top in that matchup. He knows
2: matchup. who won, he knows who scored. He can <laughs> tell you – he's like Rain Man. Yes. He can tell you – he can dissect the play. The guy remembers exactly. everything.
1: <laughs> yeah, that game was incredible. But for me, I think the moment that stands out the most is acquiring Jerome McGinley from the Calgary Flames.
2: Oh, that season, yeah. Yeah. And, the, and what was interesting was because the Penguins, of course, acquired a couple guys. Um, Doug Murray, uh, Morrow. And so, actually so – they, they got a couple guys, so you were thinking they might be done.
1: And thinking back on it now, too, it's like – you know the Aginla trade was the big one, obviously, but the Morrow trade—the pick that we got back from Dallas uh, in that deal—was what we used to select Jake Gensel. Look at that! I know, right? It's crazy how it all works out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> all comes around. Yeah. But uh, the so the night because actually the, the trade happened. I think it was either a couple of days before the deadline, but um, yeah. I mean, I obviously we knew we were trying to get him, but at that point we didn't uh, didn't know if you could fit him in the cap. <laughs> you know, didn't yeah. know. Didn't know how it was gonna work out, but really it just felt like there was no way the Penguins were gonna get this guy. Um, it just felt he was the biggest prize on the market, future Hall of Famer, 500 goals, all the All Stars, you know, the Olympics. Mo- yeah, Olympics. Yeah, Olympics. Set up Crosby on the game winner, yep. the golden goal. Uh, so, so you just you just didn't think there was any way that he would end up in Pittsburgh, and, and like I said, just just the logistics, the salary cap, yeah. and the fact that they'd already gone out and gotten a couple guys you thought they were just preparing to do it without him. So the night that they got him, or was it, I was at home, it was about almost midnight or maybe a little past midnight, and I got the call from Jim Bellano, the Penguins communications director. And meanwhile, the whole day, everyone on Twitter said the Bruins got him. Right. And, and they even pulled, I forget the guys that they were trying to move, they pulled the guys out of the game to, for the trade. So everyone's like, oh, this is... Done deal. Even Bob McKenzie was like, "Ginla's going to Boston." Yeah. So when Bob McKenzie says it, oh well, yeah, Ginla's going to Boston because <laughs> that guy's like always right. Yeah. So so Jen Bolano called me and said, "Hey, we just got a Ginla," and I was like, N- "No, we didn't." So <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, we did. And I thought she was actually messing with me yeah. initially because I was like, <laughs> I, all of Twitter, including like some big names, have said he's going to Boston. She's like, "Yeah, they're all wrong." I was like. Okay, <laughs> well then. <laughs> so then um, the, the plan from there, and then amazingly, from the moment she called, it still took an hour mm-hmm. for things to go down, but basically the, the plan was as soon as, so I would get a tweet ready for um, for, Peng- for the Penguins' Twitter about the trade, and I had to wait until uh, Feaster, the GM of the, the Flames, was gonna make the announcement. And once he made the announcement at the press conference, the Flames are going to tweet it. And as soon as I saw the Flames tweet it, I was supposed to tweet it. So, <laughs> so amazingly, I got that call. I got the tweet ready, and then I just watched Twitter going and going and going, and for an entire hour, every pundit, every fan, like everyone's talking about the Ginla's with the Bruins and he's going to do this with the Bruins, and they're, they're no, like, there's no way they don't win the cup, and just going on and on. And I'm sitting like. I can just oh see with, boy. like,
1: your fingers together, <laughs> like, <laughs> just maniacally laughing. Yeah,
2: <laughs> The hockey world is in for a shock. Yeah. So then waiting, 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 and then I think Feaster was stepping to the podium. And right before he stepped to the podium, I think one reporter either got it or figured it out. I don't I actually don't remember which reporter it was. One, it might have been, like, a Scott Burnside or maybe a LeBron. It was somebody. It was a bigger name, but one reporter right before... He made the announcement and said, literally tweeted, wait a minute, I'm hearing Pittsburgh. And Feaster steps up and then makes the announcement, like, we've come to an agreement with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Tweet, tweet, boom. Yeah. And then, like, the entire (laughs) – but then the reaction on Twitter was unbelievable because it wasn't just that the Penguins got a Genla. It was that the Penguins swooped in and stole them from Boston.
1: Yeah, who, like you said, had pulled their players off the ice.
2: Right, which, by the way, wasn't entirely true. It wasn't that, like, they swooped in and stole them. I think the agreement – Kind of, well, first of all, Jerome Aguinaldo wanted to play in Pittsburgh. He made it known. His list of three teams was Los Angeles, Pittsburgh, and Boston. And I think Los Angeles fell out of the running pretty early, but he, he preferred to be in Pittsburgh. So I think they pretty much worked on that deal. I think Boston did that as just a precaution in the hopes that they could get something done. It wasn't like Aguinaldo, you know, skirted the Bruins or anything like that. I think he wanted to be in Pittsburgh. That was his first choice. And then if that didn't work out, then obviously he wanted to go to Boston. But just watching the reactions on Twitter, both just Boston fans melting down, <laughs> and Penguins fans just pure adulation, you know, adulation, loving it. And then the fans were fired up. And then of course it happened. The funny thing was, I was so then I tried calling you. Obviously, you were sleeping. <laughs> yes,
1: Whatever. I was. Whatever.
2: <laughs> Fine, be that way. So then, uh, so then I. Wrote.
1: I was one of those people that woke up and was like, "Whoa!"
2: I was gonna say. So I wrote three or four stories over the course of the night, like talked ratio sure at two thirty in the morning. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I was writing all these stories and doing all this coverage, and the entire night, fan, literally the Penguins fans were going wild all night. Like I was up until seven in the morning doing all that stuff, and the fan, the the, the pressure never let up. Like the fans were just going wild and loving it and celebrating and sending all these gifts and. Everything in their mother uh, about just how excited they were, and then the morning. So I finally go to sleep at 7 a.m. But as I was going to sleep, another batch of Penguins fans were waking up to the news because they had gone to bed thinking he was a Boston Bruin, and woke up to find out he was a Pittsburgh Penguin. You know, it was a Dewey defeats Truman type thing. <laughs> so, so literally, like you had an entire wave rode that crest into the night, and then a new wave was coming uh, as we were. You know, everyone else was going to sleep, so it was like. It was just a wild run. And then the, I just remember the excitement following, surrounding that entire escapade. And, of course, he almost didn't make his Penguins debut. Um, he would make it a couple of days later, but he was flying in from, there was an immigration issue. He finally got the immigration issue fixed. And he was flying in, connecting in Chicago, and then flying into Pittsburgh. But his flight from Chicago got grounded because of weather. So they found an alternate flight to get him to Pittsburgh, but his equipment ended up in, like, tennessee or some random place so literally uh fedex had to scramble to get his stuff from wherever it was to get his equipment to pittsburgh and dana Heinzey, the equipment manager literally ran out and this is two hours before the game and um dana Heinzey, the equipment manager for the penguins had to run out to like the concourse to pick up jerome mcginla's bag of equipment and sticks and he's run- fighting through the crowd and all the people that are excited and there and expecting him to make his debut, but literally like two hours before puck drop, they don't know if he's going to play the game. So Heinzey fights through and he's got the equipment and he gets it down to him. And finally, then again, meets with the rest of the media and it's announced that he's going to play in the game. And man, it was just, that's the other, again, we talk about behind the scenes stuff. He played in that game, everything went smooth, but no one knows that there was a frantic dealings and everything they had to do to figure out how to get his equipment to Pittsburgh for him to play in that game. And then he suits up and, and again, the fans' enormous, enormous reaction to his uh, debut, and then of course, <laughs> the negative side is City Crosby ends up breaking his jaw like, <laughs> like a minute into the game, a little over a minute into the game, and uh, and then and that was like Easter weekend, so like he spent his Easter weekend getting his jaw repaired, and and I spent my Easter weekend talking to Ray Shiro about Sidney Crosby's jaw. <laughs> so poor Ray, man, I'm just the <laughs> nothing but talk to this poor guy.
1: He's like, oh, I got to call Sam Casson again. <laughs> again? I just talked
2: to this guy 2.30 <laughs> in the morning two days ago. <laughs> but uh, And then obviously Sid came back, and they had a, an incredible run. Unfortunately, it didn't end the way the Penguins wanted it to with the loss to Boston. But
1: Yeah, I just remember that year. I feel like it was our first experience with a larger-than-life superstar other than Sidney Crosby or Evgeny Malkin. You know, for him to come in and just – you know, be so friendly and so nice and so accommodating. It was just, like you said, it didn't end, I think, the way we all wanted it to, obviously. But, you know, it was so rewarding to get the chance to work with someone like Jerome McGinley because he was somewhat quiet, but, you know, just so nice. It's what I remember (laughs) the most. Like, for someone of his stature, you know, to be, you know, a Hall of Famer. Very humble, yeah.
2: Very Oddly soft-spoken. Yeah,
1: yeah. I just remember, like, you know, I think, you know, what I took out of that season was, you know, the excitement of the trade, and the trade didn't work out, and the season didn't work out, you know, just being grateful for the opportunity to get a chance to cover somebody like him. I mean, he was, he was awesome.
2: I remember, and then the thing was, it was the spoil of riches in Pittsburgh. Right. You already got Crosby. You already got Malkin. You already got Latang, Marc-Andre Fleury. Now you're bringing in Jerome McGinley. <laughs> I mean, how many Hall of Famers can one team take, you know?
1: Well, right. And I think, you know, for me, the next moment that stands out from the decade is getting Phil Kessel. Another swell of Riches. Yeah, exactly. I, it's just another situation where you just can't even fathom how the Penguins are going to fit <laughs> someone like him under the salary cap with all of the other superstars already in the lineup. And, you know, for Jim Rutherford to make it happen, it it just blows my mind still.
2: Jim likes a guy, he goes out and gets (laughs) him.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, just the way that that 2013 season ended was, I mean, I, I think, you know, thinking back and I remember, you know, us being in Boston for the conference final and the Penguins having just blown through Ottawa in the previous series. I mean, to the point where their head coach called it an offensive clinic that the Penguins put on.
2: (laughs) Well, not only did he call it a clinic, he literally walked up to the podium, said, well, that was an offensive clinic, we'll see you back in Pittsburgh, and then walked away. That was the entire post-game press conference. It was like six seconds. Yeah. I was like, all right, cool, see you in Pittsburgh.
1: Yeah, exactly. It just felt like the Penguins were going to win. And looking back at it now, you know, having experienced what it is like when you know the Penguins are going to win, that definitely was different. But – You know, I think you go from that to being swept by the Bruins in the Eastern Conference final and just, you know, scoring, going from an offensive clinic, scoring two goals in four games.
2: And basically five games. Exactly. Because they had an overtime and a double overtime.
1: Exactly. And I just remember, the visitors' room at TD Garden is tiny. And, I mean, it is a box. And it's just one of the worst locker rooms in terms of you know, being there in the playoffs, just with the amount of media that there is. I mean, you are just crammed, can't move. And I just remember dreading having to go in there. Not, I mean, that was one reason, but just, you know, it's, it it sucks so much to go into a locker room after a team gets eliminated. It's, you know, guys are just so upset and understandably so. And then you have to be the one sticking a microphone in their face (laughs) being like, so how did it feel to lose? (laughs) And I just remember Pascal Dupuis thinking that that might be it for him you know, sitting in one of the corners, just, you know, tears in his eyes, and you just feel so bad. And it just was such a bad feeling. And I think, you know, for the next couple of seasons, it was that I feel that feeling continued on with the way that the the next couple of years ended. I mean, there were some amazing moments, too, like Patrick Hornquist uh, coming to the Penguins. I mean, Sam, you and I were in uh, Philadelphia for that yeah, draft. For the
2: draft. <laughs> Actually, what I remember most is we were in the <laughs> top row, and uh, the Flyers fans picked on quick that we were from Pittsburgh, so they just called us Pittsburgh the whole time. And, <laughs> and then when the Hornequist yeah, like, trade went down, like, hey, Pittsburgh, <laughs> you traded Neil.
1: <laughs> hey, Pittsburgh, who'd you get?
2: And just and then just for two yeah. straight days of that entire well, draft, and we were trying to hide, Yeah, us. Well, we
1: were trying to hide our laptops because we had the press release up saying who we had acquired and who we had traded, mm. but it wasn't released to the public yet. You know, we get those before they go out. So we're, like, you know, closing our laptop is like, oh, yeah. Pittsburgh has no idea who we got. Like, I mean,
2: we we had mo mostly closed and we're, like, peeking yeah. down so that nobody else can read it.
1: Exactly. Like, trying to keep it, you know, to ourselves. But I think, you know, we knew, had a feeling that James Neal was the most likely player to be gone from that Penguins roster. But, you know, I think that just set the foundation for what was eventually going to happen in 2016. But, you know, and that trade was amazing. But truly, I mean, the the Phil Castle trade was, I mean, I think... You know, looking back on it now, uh, you know, having gone through those, you know, 2013, 2014, uh, couple years of playoff disappointments and thinking that we might not win again, that I feel like just made us feel alive, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Yeah,
2: reju- rejuvenated, I think, us, the team, the franchise, fans. I think that, that hit a lot of people because obviously a player of that caliber that could score like that, you're just dreaming of what he could do. Uh, once he's unleashed on this team, especially an offensive team like Pittsburgh, a, a team that likes to score, that likes to play that kind of fast-paced style, and and I know they were working on the trade for a while, but it finally came to fruition on that July first, and and again, like we knew they were trying, but we didn't know if they would be successful. So when it finally came down, it was like, oh my God, this is real.
1: <laughs> yeah, because you know each year, uh, now we cover July first from. UPMC Alumni Sports Complex, but before that was built, we would get a conference room in the front office and just set up in there. You know, everyone had their laptops out, everyone had their coffee or in your case, an energy drink. <laughs> uh, we put TSN or NHL Network on uh, and just watched and worked and waited. And I remember just Jason Seidling, who was then the manager of communications, just opening the door. To what we call jokingly the war room with you and I and, and the rest of the new media department, and just saying, we got Phil Kessel, which you know is like when Jen and called you it was like we got Drew McGinley, yeah. And you're just like, oh my god! I just remember us pulling up YouTube and watching every single highlight video we could find. I mean, I just will never forget how giddy we were just watching him time after time, just rip down the wing, and you know, release a snapshot into the back of the net before the goalie would even react and. And we just couldn't believe that Jim Rutherford and his staff had found a way to add a sniper, a superstar, a pure goal scorer, one of the best players in the in the league, into a lineup that already had uh, Crosby and Malkin, two of the best players in the world. So that was an incredible time. And when I definitely feel like I can remember, like it was yesterday.
2: Yeah, I mean, they added him and then didn't start out the way they wanted. Obviously, right. the, the team struggled <laughs> a little bit initially, but of course brought maybe the pivotal moment for the franchise in this decade which was the hiring of Mike Sullivan become the head coach and I know you talked to him a couple times before that move was made and got a feel for uh let's say his character
1: (laughs) I do remember the first question I asked him
2: this was this is when he was Wilkes-Barre's
1: yes when we had announced that he was Wilkes-Barre's head coach and you know it's something where you always just have to be prepared at any time. Uh, you know, something like that happens. I remember I was at Church Brew Works in Lawrenceville getting lunch with coworkers because it was June 28th. Like you know, it was around the draft, so you know it's a time where you want to be ready and want to be prepared in case anything happens. And so I think I had my recorder with me, and uh, just the way it worked out, he called me while I was in the middle of eating. So I went into. Ah, uh, the lobby, which is you know one of the glamorous parts of the job, is trying to find a quiet place to do phone interviews when you're somewhere and can't, you know, necessarily like be in an office with a closed door. Uh, so I remember I you know congratulated him and uh, asked my first question. And when I went back to transcribe it, the f- his first answer took an entire page, <laughs> single space. He's verbose. Yeah, he's he's verbose, but I think you know he's also you know firm. He's articulate. He's passionate. He's intense. And all that came through, and I remember just being so impressed with him and what he had to say uh, and just being excited about him you know, being part of the organization. I felt the same way when I talked to him at the rookie tournament. Uh, but then, you know, training camp happens, and he goes his separate way back down to Wilkes-Barre, Scranton. You know, we were obviously keeping track of what was going on down there, just how he was guiding them to an 18-5 start in first place in the Atlantic Division. But, you know, I, I think it was something, too, where – Uh, You know, the team hadn't in Pittsburgh hadn't been trending the way anybody would have wanted them to, especially, you know, after you add a guy like Phil Kessel. uh, Just, you know, Jim Rutherford just wasn't happy with the way the team was playing. And uh, that Sunday was our first day off in a while. But of course, I was woken up to a phone call from you (laughs) telling me I needed to get down to the office right away because uh, we had just relieved Mike Johnson of his duties and that Mike Sullivan was going to be taking over. So I took the quickest shower of my life, threw on clothes, raced downtown to PPG Paints Arena. And uh, that's when, you know, the media assembled in the room where Jim Rutherford does his press conferences. And they were handing out a release that said Mike Sullivan named head coach of Pittsburgh Penguins. And it was something, too, where, you know, we were told that we were going to be able to talk to him as he was driving from Wilkes-Barre to Pittsburgh, you know, five, five and a half hour drive. So, you know, we did all our coverage of, you know, Jim Rutherford and what he had to say and prepared our questions for Mike Sullivan. But it was something where, you know, he might have had a few other important things on his mind uh, than talking to us. So we waited there for a while. And I remember, um, you know, at one point I literally took a nap in the chair across from your desk because we had nothing to do but sit and wait for the call. But I'll never forget, you know, that first interview stands out more than any of the other ones just because you could tell that he was just the person that the Penguins needed to come and put this team back on track. I mean, just that booming baritone voice. I mean, it truly does exude like a confidence and a swagger, and he just is so firm and articulate and just everything he says is so measured and and so it just I feel like made us – I felt better after talking. I was like, all right, this guy is going to come in and do exactly what the Penguins need him to do. He's the alpha male, as you've said before.
2: Yeah, well, he came in, and I mean, his thing was – Really, he needed to get the team to be more resilient. And so I remember, obviously, he came in and his first four games were losses. <laughs> so yeah, wasn't the best start. <laughs> I remember talking to him after the fact, and he said he needed to show the resilience that he wanted the team to show. So even though they still like, had lost their first couple games under him, he kept up the demeanor that they were going to get things right. And eventually they did. Obviously, things started to come around. Not- Trades had a big part of that. I remember they, traded- they picked up Trevor Daly and then um, traded for Carl Hagelin. Um but I think the turning point, there's two games that stand out to me that season that were the turning point. One was against the New York Rangers, mostly because the Rangers had had their number the previous couple of years. They beat them five games in the year previous. Two years before that, they the Penguins were up 3-1 in the series, and the Rangers came back and won the series in seven. So the Rangers were kind of like the ghost that haunted the Penguins. So... They went into a game against the Rangers, and, and you felt like the Rangers were just in their heads, but that was the game where the Penguins flipped the script on them completely, both on the Rangers and on Hendrick Lundqvist, who had been pretty good against the Penguins up until that point. Oh, yeah. And then uh, all of a sudden, it was late in the second period, and the Penguins scored three goals in, like, two minutes. Um, and right after one one play, Hendrick Lundqvist was so upset with the play that he flipped his own net, and, of course, the Penguins fans went wild.
0: Crosby goes the other way. into the net. Here he is. Oh, trying to go back. Trying to make the perfect play, and Lundqvist ended up 10 feet out of the net and lost his goal stick, and he seems to be a bit shaken up as the puck is fired just wide of the goal at the other hand by Victor Stolberg. Yeah, he's not happy right now. He is yelling. He knocked, just knocked the net right off. It's Moritz. So he's, he, he's banged up. He purposely just knocked the net right off. It's Moritz.
2: That was the moment where the entire situation flipped, and then from then on, the Penguins have just owned not only the, the Rangers, but <laughs> Hendrik Lundqvist as well. But that, So that I think that moment kind of exercised some of the demons. And then there was a game against the Capitals. And actually, ironically, Tom Kunak was like the hero of that game. <laughs> he scored a goal, had an assist, like had a fight. But uh, at that point, the, the Capitals were by far the best team in the league, the President's Trophy team. They were running through all, everybody they played. So that was a huge test for the Penguins. Braden Holpey was the number one goaltender in the entire league. Um so the Penguins actually not only won the game, but chased Holtby. So you're kind of like, this team is for real. Yeah. And then they went into the playoffs and they had the Rangers. And again, since they had the previously flipped the script on the Rangers, they went into the playoffs like, they're going to beat this team. And that was the feeling you got. Like, there was no doubt they were going to beat the Rangers. And then they just steamrolled right through and won in like five games. Uh, Mr. Game 1, Jeff yeah. Zakoff <laughs> came through in the clutch uh, for the Game 1 victory. And then against Washington, I mean, it was the the perennial Washington Penguins, you know, series that happens every every year, every uh, spring. So they they go in, they lose game one, and as a uh, Borky told me after, we got them right where we want them because <laughs> the the Penguins always seem to lose game one to Washington, then win the series for whatever reason. Yeah. And then you know the Penguins ended up winning in six games, and that was of course the HBK line became a big thing. Shawn Michaels came to a game. You know, it was it was such a magical run that entire time. And yeah. uh, Nick Benino's, you know, scoring the big goal. In, uh, After
1: three straight delay of game penalties.
2: Yeah, <laughs> something that I've never seen and we will never probably see again. Yeah.
0: Right side with new unit on for the Penguins. Benino looking for Haglund going to the goal. Haglund gets to it, goes around near corner to Kessel in the slot. Turning shot by Haglund. It goes off a body and in. It's over. The Penguins, Nick Benino may have touched it. And the Penguins have won this game in overtime at the 6.32 mark. And ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has just left the building. And all the President's Trophy men couldn't put Humpty together again. Penguins 4 and the Capitals 3.
1: But you know what's crazy about that whole run, Sam? And I know there's obviously so many, like you said, magical moments um, we even wrote a book about how many magical moments there were from those two years. But I think for me, the one that stands out the most is, like you said, I mean, the, the Penguins basically steamrolled through the Rangers and the Capitals. And, you know, that entire time, they just felt like a team of destiny. Like, you just knew they were going to win the Stanley Cup. Like, after everything we had seen and experienced in the previous years, like being around the team every single day, You just have a feeling. like You know when they're going to lose, and you know when they're going to win. You know when they got it, and you know when they don't. Exactly. And I knew they had it, but the only time my doubt creeped in or a doubt creeped in was in that Eastern Conference Final against Tampa Bay, just because that was the first time that whole postseason they faced elimination, being down 3-2, and we had to go back to Tampa for Game 6, and the Lightning had a chance to close it out and win the series and eliminate us. And it was just something where... I remember just being so nervous about that game. And obviously that was the game where Andy Socher, the Penguins video coach, was the MVP by, you know, alertly realizing that the first goal from Jonathan Droyan um, just uh, five minutes into the game was offside. And we were sitting up in the press box. and I remember Pascal Dupuis was next to us, and he was, like, the first one to know. He's like, he's offside, he's offside. And yeah, we're looking he, like, at standing him like – up, jumping up and yeah. down, pointing to the monitor. <laughs> Yeah, we're like, well, what is he talking sit about? Down, sit down, dude. Yeah. <laughs> You're not allowed to cheer in the press box. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and thankfully, he turned out to be right. But, um, you know, it was something where that was overturned. And the Penguins built a 3-0 lead. I mean, Sidney Crosby scored this unbelievable goal where he skated through a swarm of, I think it was four Lightning players to get that third one. But that was through the first two periods. In the third period, the Lightning pushed back to cut the s- Penguins' lead to 3-2, and at this point, I was already downstairs because I was waiting to go into the room and you were upstairs covering the rest of the game, but I just needed to be in position. So I'm just in the bowels of Amelie Arena, just watching from this tiny TV monitor hanging above the spare nets in the Zamboni gate, just, you know, feeling so nervous and so stressed because Lightning had plenty of time to even the score, especially if they pulled the goalie. I mean, they had all the momentum on their side. And that's when Brian Rust, with, you know, two minutes left to play, uh, goes in on a breakaway and scores a goal on this sick move to give the Penguins a 4-2 lead.
0: And Slater-Kukuk chases after it. It ends up in the Penguin near corner. Losing her stick was only man who retrieves it, and he makes a play to the near boards to Kunit Up ahead to Russ on a breakaway. Russ coming to the net, makes a backhand move, and he goes to the forward and it beats And the Penguins lead 4-2. It's time to buy new shoes. Ryan Rush on the breakaway goal goes backhand, forehand, and beats Vasilevsky. Penguins by two now.
1: I have chills now thinking about it because it was at that moment that I knew that no doubt in my mind that we were going to win the Stanley Cup. Like, no matter what happened in game seven, I just had a feeling. And I think when I look back on that run, that's what stands out to me the most. Like, just, you know, standing with a Pencil microphone in my hand, watching this tiny TV monitor watching Brian Rust, this young kid who had, you know, started the season in Wilkes-Barre and then comes up so clutch like that with a gut-wrenching goal to end Tampa Bay's season, I was like, the Penguins are going to win the Cup. Not even, like, thinking, you know, realizing, and I know it was Game 7, heroics were, you know, the stuff of legend and folklore, but, (laughs) you know, still to me I think that goal is the one that stands out the most uh, when I think back in the decade and that run uh, just for, you know, how amazing it was and really just making me realize that we were going to win.
2: Yeah, and then the, the San Jose series actually, ironically, the one. I remember the first period, the Penguins just overwhelmed. It was, it was almost embarrassing. <laughs> they, they overwhelmed them. It was like an NHL team playing a junior team or something. Yeah. It was so lopsided. And,
1: and it was amazing, too, because I was actually in the stands for that first period because with how much media there was, we had to have an auxiliary press box, and it just happened to be in one of the sections. And, you know, just the atmosphere, you know, from there, because when you're in the press box, you don't feel it as much. But just the atmosphere, the buzz, like from the people around me as we were watching the Penguins just dominate the way they did. It's it was just you know reinforced that knowledge that they were going to win.
2: Yeah, and uh, I won't name names, but uh, a certain member of the, <laughs> of the Sharks organization <laughs> literally came up to one of the a Penguin employee after the first period, shook his hand, and said congratulations on the Stanley Cup. <laughs> I think he was kind of joking, but also kind of like, man, yeah, if that's the way this is going to go. Right. But it was such a dominant first period, and then obviously the Penguins. Ended up winning that game and and really had a chance to win it at home in Game Five and obviously I remember the the way the again the fans unbelievable we talked about the black and gold game but the way they just took to the streets like f- not only right outside of uh, PPG Paints Arena but also t- down in Market Square they also set up a, a screen for the fans to watch I mean it was like forty thousand strong you know there's twenty some thousand uh, mm-hmm. down and twenty five some thousand down right outside the arena and another ten market square and then scattered around and just the way obviously I think the penguins felt a little that was the first time I think they felt a little pressure to win just because
1: they wanted to win so badly for all the fans there that they were overwhelmed and understandably so I mean I remember that whole season I remember like Mike Sullivan just said like you have to keep the noise out you have to keep the noise out but that was something where the noise crept in and (laughs) you and under I mean the situation yeah it, it was such a perfect situation if it had worked out and I know I like, you know, the guys all said like they wanted so badly to win for all those fans that were there to support them and they just couldn't get it done, but you know, for them, you know, to get it done in game six in San Jose And what people was forget about
2: game six in San Jose was it was two one in the third period. Penguins only had a one goal lead. It was two one. San Jose's entire playoff dreams are on the line and they got one shot in the third period. They got one shot. Their championships on the line. They're only down by one goal they only got one shot. That's how good the Penguins were when they wanted to shut it down defensively. Then, of course, they got the empty netter that sealed it for the 3-1 win, but it's hard to to fathom how good that Penguins team was. They were just steamrolling clubs, and you said it was like a team of destiny. They were bound to win that cup.
1: And
0: so the Pens, a high-sticking call against Fair. I tell you, the Penguins on the bench right now are like 8-year-old kids. That's all right. That's awesome. They're waiting for the... uh... They're all like the 8th grade pickling. Drop of the puck, classic shooting it. Knockdown, down, Crosby's got it, play it up. Four seconds to go, the Penguins have jumped over the boards. It sails down to the Sharks in, short-handed. It's over. Get in the fast lane, Grandma. The bingo game is ready to roll. The 2016 Stanley Cup champions, the Pittsburgh Penguins. What an effort for the Pittsburgh Penguins blocking shots you name it they did it all here tonight gloves and sticks everywhere and the Penguins in they mob Matt Murray the goaltender the Penguins to a man have joined in a big circle hugging one another what an unbelievable moment here for the Pens and the Sharks a valiant effort here in this game to try and get back and save the season but the Penguins were too much they win the series four games to two And they mob one another. The hugs continue. For these players, something that they will never, ever forget. And the bond between them all is something that you have to experience to really understand how this will carry the rest of their lives.
2: It did feel like a team of destiny. Of course, the 2017 team felt like a team that just (laughs) hobbled and battled and grinded their way to a cup. It's amazing that it's essentially the same team. They won kind of two different ways. To, to be able to do it, to get the back-to-back cups, first team to do it in 19 years, obviously since the Detroit Red Wings. But, um, I mean, there were some changes, of course. Jake Hensel was added to that team. And how, who can forget Jake Hensel's first game as a pang? I know we won't.
1: It's just incredible because, you know, his debut went as well as anyone could have written it up, you know, for him to score two goals. But for him to go on and just continue to score goals – In every single situation, (laughs) regular season, postseason, it's it's just amazing. I mean, he truly is, you know, a pure goal scorer. You know, back when the Penguins first drafted him in 2013, you know, I remember uh, being, you know, the first person to talk to him and afterward when he did his media availability you know taking his headshot on my blackberry and just thinking how young this kid looked like even the scouts were saying like he looks like a fourth grader and knowing like like he still looks like a fourth grader hopefully he doesn't listen to this yeah (laughs) (laughs) because
2: i'm sure i'll hear about it in the locker room
1: Right, right right but yeah i mean just knowing how many more years of development he had ahead of him And just realizing it was probably going to be a while because he did have to, you know, get bigger and, you know, get stronger, you know, all the things that these 18 year old kids say. And, you know, for him to go from that to what he is now, it's just amazing. Like you just, I feel like he just almost came out of nowhere um, as that pure goal scorer and that winger for Sid that everyone always talked about. But, you know, in terms of acquiring it through the draft or free agency, but it turns out he was there the whole time just developing through the system and taking a while, but it was worth the wait.
2: He does, and then he carries that over against Columbus in the first round of the playoffs. Has a, a big goal in game one. Then game two gets, or game three gets the hat trick against Columbus, including the game winning goal in overtime, which ends up being the hat trick goal. And they carry that success. But the funny, I'd say a moment that really stands out in that playoff run of all the moments was Matt Murray getting injured in warm ups in game one against Columbus, and then Marc-Andre Fleury having to come in and play that game, and the ovation of the crowd was unbelievable. And to have Marc-Andre Fleury and Mur- Matt Murray share those duties throughout that cup run, I think was so awesome. Because you know, obviously Mark andre Fleury was the guy for so many years, then he had to sit and watch Matt Murray lead the team to a cup in 16. So I, I, it was truly a full team effort in 17, from the backup goaltender all the way on down to the 23rd man on the roster. Like Everybody had to contribute on that one.
1: For sure. And it was just, you know, when he had to jump into action uh, as quickly as he did in game one, I feel like people might forget that he was getting just swarmed that first period by Columbus. Um, You know, I mean, the Blue Jackets were coming at him with everything they had. And, you know, for him to just play the way he did, you know, just be that calming presence back there and let the Penguins settle in. And eventually, you know, win the game and, and win the series. I mean, it just says so much about him. And, and I think, like, you know, the ovation he got from the fans. I mean, we were standing in the press box just all smiling, marveling, <laughs> just, like, goosebumps, chills. Like, I mean.
2: Well, the hard thing was we didn't know. Because yeah. we saw Murray leave warm-ups early, and we didn't know. And I have to do the pregame for the uh, for the Penguins on the Jumbotron. And I'm like. So am I going to put Murray as my goaltender here? Like, what's going on? And then one of the Penguins staffers, like, one of the last minutes texted me. J- he just said, Flurry. Yeah. That's, that's all he texted me. <laughs> so so going in, I don't even know if we ran a graphic of Flurry or if I just spoke, but, like, it was literally the last minute, a last-minute start. And it was just an insane way for things to go down. Of course, and then Flurry wins against Columbus, leads him to another victory against Washington, the stick save on Ovechkin, Game 7, off the, the butt end of his stick. Just unbelievable.
1: Yeah, because it wasn't as much of a sure thing to beat the Capitals that year in that series. Yeah,
2: because what we said the, la- the previous year in 16, it felt like they steamrolled everybody. But in 17, they had to grind their way out. They didn't have Crystal Tang. He missed mm-hmm. the entire playoff. So these guys were really just, <laughs> like I said, eking out wins any way they could. And, 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 including, and then they get to, against Ottawa. And maybe the one game that stands out of that whole run me other than maybe the Washington game was obviously big game seven but the double overtime game seven (laughs) against Ottawa just what a way for that series to end
1: well so I was again downstairs waiting to go into the locker room just to be at the ready because yeah when you when you're up in the press box you have to go to the elevator you have to wait for that you have to walk to the locker room it takes a while so you know when it it's an overtime period like that you know, things happen so quickly, you're not gonna be down in time if you're just coming from the press box. So I was ready and waiting and you were still upstairs. And I just remember like, you know, the first overtime, it was it was stressful, it was nerve wracking. But then going into the second overtime, it's like at that point you're just like, you know what, I just want this game to end. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, Kessler had a post in the first yeah. overtime. Then there was a play and, where he cut to the net and the puck popped up and landed on top of the well, net. Well, it's and-
1: going back to that feeling we talk about. Like you know when the team's gonna win and you know when they're not gonna win. And we knew they were going to win that game. Like, I, we just had a feeling.
2: Well, I feel like the first period, you didn't feel it. Just right. Because they were getting so many chances, like, this is going to be one of those games. Right. Where they hit a post, and they come so close, then lose it on some kind of fluky goal. But then going into the second, yeah, it felt like, I think they just completely dominated the entire second overtime, too. Up until Kunitz got that goal, and then maybe the loudest I've ever heard, the building.
0: Shiri, though, with the puck. Just on his Crosby. Shiri waits for him. Goes cross-rink It goes to Schultz. Now to Crosby, too hard off the boards, but he finds it. Crosby of the Penguins, left wing circle over to Kunitz. Shot, score! Chris <laughs> Kunitz wins it for the Pittsburgh Penguins as Crosby sets him up. And ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has just left the building. Kunitz with a game winner, his second of the night. And the Penguins are going on to play the Nashville Predators and you know what you can spit shine your shoes baby the Penguins are going to go dancing with Lord Stanley once again
1: I am sad to this day that I wasn't upstairs with you watching this goal being scored simply for the reaction from the bowl everybody just jumping to their feet (laughs) throwing their arms out like that reaction I still to this day every now and then I'll pull it up and watch it because it's I think that's the coolest part like imagine just being a fan there for that game I mean that it, it's just that's that's why yeah. that's I mean I was why. gonna say I
2: saw for a split second then I had to tweet yeah <laughs> the winner and then I had to get this three stars and like yeah scrambles it wasn't like I was like yeah. jumping up and enjoying yeah it, but, but I think you it know was, it was awesome
1: something too you know that got almost I don't want to say lost but Jay Gensel went that entire series without a goal after you know he was incredible against Columbus and then um you know, carried that over against Washington. And then just, for whatever reason, just didn't have it against the Senators. Going into game one against Nashville, I'll never forget. You know, I feel like we've seen so many things over the years. You're like, I've never seen anything like this before.
2: I've made that reference many times (laughs) watching this team.
1: And that was one of those times because the Penguins went 37 minutes without a shot. And it's just, how does that even happen? I mean, how does that even happen?
2: It's hard to score when you don't shoot. I know. Of course, the like, Penguins being the Penguins when they finally do get the shot.
1: Yeah, it's Jake Ensel, you know, just going down the wing and just finding a way to find the back of the net against Pecorine. And it's just this kid, you know, this kid, like, scores this huge goal. And the Penguins went on to win the first two games at home. And going back to Nashville, you know, it was, it was tough to see him drop those two. But I think that was another series where we fought the Penguins, you know, for everything they had gone through and how they literally basically had to drag themselves to that point. <laughs> <laughs> Knew how to win. And that's exactly what they ended up doing.
2: And going back to the toughest decision Mike Sullivan's ever had to make, because Marc-Andre Fleury did lead them to the Eastern Conference final, and he made the decision to go back to Matt Murray against Ottawa. And, you know, he did say it, it was it's still to this day the hardest decision he's ever had to make, and clearly he ended up making the right decision because Murray did lead him to a victory in that Ottawa series. But then against Nashville, game five and game six, Matt Murray pitches <laughs> shutouts, back-to-back shutouts. In the Stanley Cup final to shut it down and get them the win. And of course, no more poetic justice than Patrick Hornquist against the team that drafted him, raised him as a, a young pup hockey player, then traded him to Pittsburgh. He comes back to Nashville, back to his hockey home, scores the game winning goal. The Stanley Cup game winning goal.
0: Good pass by Meta. Finds the stick of Chris Kunitz. Comes to the Predators line. Trying to make a move and then go to the inside, but he got checked on the play. He gets after the puck on the far boards, however. And finds it to Schultz. He's got a chance. Wristing one, missing the net on the rebound. Penguins have scored on the rebound from behind the net. They have put it in. And Patrick Hornquist put it in off Rene, and the Penguins have a one nothing lead. Oh, he is smiling like a butcher's dog. Justin Schultz had the opportunity. And in front, and then it was Hornquist chasing it down from behind, put it
1: off the body of Renee. The Penguins take a one nothing lead. I mean, these moments are just so magical, and you just can't write them up any better.
2: Man, what a decade.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, we talk about the players you know, having these magical moments that you couldn't have written up any better, but I think for us working for the team, I feel the same way. You know, if, coming out of college, if you could ask me what my dream job was, I mean, I literally couldn't even have imagined it could be as good as this. You know, not just from the product we've watched on the ice, watching them win, you know, two Stanley Cup championships and achieving everything they have, uh, but off the ice as well. I think, you know, this has we've been a family. I mean, you and I have become best friends over this past decade. Um, you know, and, and the same goes for the rest of our coworkers. We're all so close, have such a tight bond, have been through so much together. And it's truly been a dream come true. I mean, Ten years later, I'd still pinch myself that this is what we're doing. I mean, it was a dream job from the start, still a dream job now. And I think, too, like, you know, for, for me and I know for you, just having that chance to work alongside Sidney Crosby this past decade has been truly unbelievable. I mean, just he's a better person than he is a player. And, you know, I feel like that says everything you need to know when you're the best player in the world. I mean, he's made this, uh, you know, it's been the biggest reason I think this has been such an incredible journey for us um, because he's gone above and beyond to make us feel like we're part of it, um, you know, right alongside with the team. So I think that's what stands out to me the most from this past decade. What
2: stands out to me the most is that Penguins fans are very spoiled <laughs> and we don't realize it, you know, it's, it's hard not to be. It's so hard to win a championship. Not spoiled in a bad way. I mean, spoiled in a good way. Yeah. It's so hard to win a championship, but to get three... Now, obviously, I know two were in this decade. But to have three and to be able to watch two of the best players in the world, after having the best player in the world, in Yarmou Yager, and having the best player of all time in Mario Lemieux, the success this team has had is just unbelievable. I mean, there's not another franchise out there that can... Well, made in New England Patriots, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But in, in hockey... I don't think any other team can boast the success that the Penguins have had. And we're so lucky, so fortunate. and You know what? you have to pinch yourself every day. And, and it's not over yet. That's the thing. We've got yep. another decade ahead. Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin are still going. And who knows what this team can do and what those two can do. I, th- I think they've got another cup or two left in them. And hopefully that uh, comes to fruition. I mean, I don't want to be spoiled, but <laughs> I'll take another cup or two, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I
1: wouldn't turn it down.
2: Yeah, I, I'm not going to say no.
1: Yeah.
2: But I do think it's it's truly been a blessing to not only cover this team I think from a fan perspective to follow this team. It's you don't want to take it for granted. Sometimes it's hard not to the way this team has been so successful, but it it is is a truly an honor to be here and cover this team for the last 10 years.
1: And it has truly been an honor Sam to sit here alongside with you and reminisce about the best moments from the last decade. I wish I could say the same.
2: <laughs> and
1: I can. Yeah. <laughs> You went the right way with that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wrap this up. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. It's been truly a, a pleasure to cover this team for everybody um, and for the fans. So uh, that'll end the first podcast of the last decade. Um, this has been the latest episode of The Scoop presented by PPG. For Sam Kassan and Wayne Gretzky-Anderson, I'm Michelle krak Thanks for staying with us.